Okay. Got a backup recording going just in case. So, please be patient with the technological issues, and I'll get to your questions as best I can. Um, like I said, Snapchat, the Luke Thomas 79 Right after this is over, I'm going to be going and, and uh, taking care of all that. Uh, okay. So, let's get to this chat. And by the way, I don't have any diet soda. I don't know if there's a connection that's been scientifically validated through peer review examination and study that definitively links uh, aspartame to memory loss. There are some suggestions that is true, but in any case, my memory has been failing me generally and my recall has been problematic um, specifically. So in an effort to combat that, I am trying to, not, I don't know if I can eliminate diet soda, but certainly cut down. So all I have is my regular Starbucks here. All right, let's see what he says. Let me see if the audio is still botched. All right. Without further ado, Rhonda's appearance on Ellen. Okay. What were your thoughts on it? Do you believe what she said or do you think she was hy hyperbolizing? Uh, also, do you think she'll ever return to the octagon? I keep thinking she's done. I do not get the vibe that she's done. Um, I, I get the vibe that she'll be back in some form or another. Um, when that is and how she'll look is entirely up for debate. But if someone has said, have you seen the last of her in the octagon? I would certainly say that is not the case. Like we have seen, we'll see more of her. So that aside, what did I make of her comments? I found them very troubling. Like the rest of you. Um, as you guys know, in, t in October of 2003, I've talked about it any number of times. I lost my own mother to suicide. And uh, so obviously anytime these issues are brought into the public space, um, they have a unique effect on me, like they would, I imagine, if you were in a similar situation. Um, so let's talk about them. Let's say this. I'm glad she's talking about it publicly. That's a good thing. Um, keeping those thoughts secret to you is bad. That will never go well for you. Um, if you have deep, dark thoughts like that, um, you, and you hold on to them and you don't publicly air them, really tro troubling developments can happen in your life. Um, when you have a scary thought like that, where you think about taking your own life or doing damage to yourself and you internalize it without acknowledging it to the wider world, uh, they begin to grow more powerful as urges. So there is a value in acknowledging them because um, it's not a it's not a acknowledgement of weakness. It is an acknowledgement of um, you know any kind of suicidal thought for the most part like that is not going to be rational. It's one thing to say someone's at the end of their life, they have terminal cancer, they're in pain. The current regimen of cancer-treating drugs won't save them. Do they really want to go with, through with painful chemotherapy um, and whatnot? Or do they want to just uh, make a rational choice to end their life? And that's a difficult conversation to have. But that's very different than getting rocked, um, being certainly concussed and out of it, and then dealing with this swell of thoughts that... Um, in a sense, came from nowhere. That's not, it's not a rational thought that she had. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not powerful. And that doesn't mean that in some recess of your brain that they're not um, convincing on some level. Thoughts don't have to be rational to be persuasive. Um, and m most thoughts that aren't persuasive aren't rational. Or I should 
most thoughts that are persuasive aren't rational. Um, so here's what I think. Um, she should talk to someone about that. I'm no mental health professional. Um, I'm not here to make any kind of diagnosis or tell you from a medical standpoint what is or what isn't happening. I also don't think that the kind of thing she's admitting is so bad that um, she has to put everything on hold to address that. I don't think suicide is some sort of eminent problem that she is facing. But if you are in a position where even through trauma, some portion of your brain activates the idea that suicide is a reasonable choice to take to alleviate some kind of distress, you need to see someone about that. That's not a normal thought. It's not a healthy thought. It's not a productive thought. It's not the end of the world if you manage it and get ahead of it and acknowledge it. So she, on some level, she's done the early work on that. But uh, it's just acknowledging it publicly is not enough. You have to get to the source of why those thoughts are emanating in that way. Um, it's, it, they can be cancerous and they can grow quickly. And so that should be acknowledged. So, so that's the first thing I think I would say. Um, the second thing I think I would say about it is I didn't quite understand and by the way, who knows if housekeeping will come and knock in the middle of this chat because this is state-of-the-art technology. So we'll see how that goes. Um, the, the comment she made about finding validation in existence through motherhood I found to also be very bizarre. Um, not that there's anything wrong with motherhood or being proud of it, but reducing one's existence uh, and, de and deriving identity and value in that existence strictly from motherhood is a bizarre opinion to have um but was that again was that a rational thought or was she acknowledging again some of the things that she experienced that she wants to talk about that perhaps aren't normal so we'll, we'll monitor this we'll see how things go but suffice to say there were some troubling things she said there were some positive developments as a result of it but if i were her i would take seriously if you ever are out there, you listening to me now, if you ever have a thought where something in your brain tells you you're not good enough, you're not valued enough, you don't deserve this, why are you even living, this doesn't make sense, um, you need to address that. You need to address that right away. Because that in and of itself is not grounds for the world ending, but letting that go could be, right? Um, I'm interested to know what your take was on the most disturbing moment during the interview. One, the destiny fate speak. Again, that was weird. Suicidal thoughts I've addressed. The babies with Travis, I thought was truly bizarre. The claim she was out on her feet in the first exchange, which upon looking at the fight is absolutely not the case. Um, you know what? I can't tell you how many fighters I've spoken to off the record who have told me something similar to that. Now, not about Ronda. That they have been in fights where there was a punch early in the fight that absolutely floored them and they kept fighting on autopilot but that they knew they were not the same or, or they lacked memory of it uh what fight was it that uh tim sylvia had where he got he doesn't remember several rounds right this is something that is very common that they don't admit publicly again i will give rousey credit for admitting it publicly i really will i cannot tell you and i can't reveal who it was i'm talking about famous ufc champions I'm talking about guys who you would never expect to say this. I cannot tell you how many times they've told me that off the record. Um, it's, it's way, way more common than you think. Way more common. 
I don't give her any grief about that at all. The outburst of raw emotion and the impact of vitriol, no one gives an S about me anymore. Um, I think the vitriol thing was also tied to the suicide, or the, the no one gives an S about me anymore is tied to the suicide thought, but the outburst of raw emotion, Rousey is an emotional creature. She's psychotically competitive. Um, she loves hard. She hates hard. She has a bit of a victim complex, you know? She trademarked this F them all thing. Like, like if your parent um, takes their own life, that is a deeply damaging thing that will happen to you. But in the totality of the life experience that Rousey ha has had, um, she's not much of a victim, generally, right? She's born with incredible genetics, uh, born to a mother who was an extraordinarily accomplished athlete, uh, an academic to some degree, certainly has a, 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 um, a doctorate. Uh, was she was born, you know, uh, certainly has matured into a beautiful woman. She was born with incredible genetics herself. Uh, I'm not to say she hasn't experienced her fair share of hardship. Um, I, I'm a little bit hesitant to say this is a person who has um, who has suffered from consistent victimhood in life. Um, but then again, athletes will always arrange some kind of crazy rationalizations to motivate themselves, right? So again, how seriously do you want to take some of the things she's saying? Maybe they're not really worth getting all that upset about. Um, but, you know, if we're trying to, like, evaluate the truth of her claims, like, or the or the underlying notes of it, I don't find her to be much of a victim. She's a, she's a, a winner who has experienced certainly some significant bumps in the road, but is generally had in her life relative to the rest of the common population has had the wind at her back. Um, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. So, um, you know, when you talk about the raw emotion, these are just things she has done to propel her in life. And some people find the other side of that off-putting. That's okay. Um, I will say that there was some surprising reactions from other fighters. I saw people on Facebook and on Twitter, fighters in the UFC, former fighters, not really taking much, giving her a lot of solace or uh, comfort in her grief. Uh, some that were like, you know, you suck at losing. This is all a phony act. Um, you know, everyone loses. It's not that big a deal. You turning it into the world's biggest thing is, uh, you know, a further indictment on you. And again, these are not my views, but certainly I saw these expressed. I will say she, you know, and you're getting back to this Cam Newton debate. She sucks at losing. But the truth about losing is uh, you're not supposed to be comfortable with it, but you're not optimizing your performance by letting it eat at you either. Eat at you in, in that kind of degree. It should eat at you in a way to positively motivate you. But there can be a point where the grief and the frustration and the regret over what went wrong can be blinding. And you, you wonder if she's trended into that territory a little bit. Let's see. Rockhold's ground game. Although Luke Rockhold is primarily known as a striker and prefers to keep the fight standing, his elite grappling seems to be the most lethal. I don't know what you're saying here. Every fighter that went to the ground with him in the UFC has been finished handily by either submission or vicious ground and pound. Even Weidman, who consistently trains with some of the very best, seemed to have no answer for escaping Luke's mount. Rockhold is a black belt under Leandro Vieira and has been praised by multiple-time uh, champion Bouchesha. Uh, question, what are your thoughts on Rockhold's grappling skills? Um, 
and where would you rank his ground game in the entire sport? He is certainly one of the better black belts, I think, in the sport. I think you can say that. Um, he, one of these guys who picked up jujitsu a little bit later in terms of his overall skill development, but I think once he got it, really roared and surged ahead. Um, I thought, you know, I broke it down the Monday morning analyst. I thought his mount was absolutely nuts on Weidman. And people were like, well, you know, Weidman didn't do a lot of the things that are common for escaping. That's true. But he was also, in whatever attempts he did make, they were shut down pretty quickly. You know, if, if your first two attempts on trying something are shut down, you might just abandon hope for the third and the fourth, especially when you're getting bombed on. You know, and you look at the mount that Rockhold had, if this is the body and Rockhold's here, you could have sat another person behind Rockhold on top of Weidman. That's how high up his mount was. A truly, truly high mount. Insane. Um you know, he, he competed in the world as a brown belt and got disqualified, I think, for reaping or um, something like that. But in any case, he hasn't really had a chance to validate his jiu-jitsu skills in the jiu-jitsu forum. But, you know, again, I've mentioned this before. I was there when he called out Keenan Cornelius for a Metamorphs event. I think putting those two together would be a great test to see where he's at. I think uh, Keenan's a little bit undersized for uh, Rockhold. But, yeah, I mean, look, Rockhold's got tricks. I think people sleep on Rockhold's ground game. They don't treat it like someone like Maya or something. And Rockhold is dangerous because um, I don't know what kind of guard he has. We don't really ever see him on his back. But he's got great passing. He's got great submissions. You can see from a, a variety of different positions, you know, getting guys from Turtle, right? The, the triangle he got, he got from Turtle, I think, on Boach. Um you know, he's got a lot of different weird varieties, and he's a big guy, too. You know, you think of big guy jiu-jitsu as on top, pressure passing, getting to side, getting to mount, and holding it. And he's got that, too, but he's got the, he's got small, you know, it's like Frank Mir. What you want to see is a big guy with small man jiu-jitsu. And he and Frank Mir, two different kinds of jiu-jitsu, but he and Frank Mir have small man jiu-jitsu. And, um, you know, that to me says a lot about their game. All right, fantasy matchups. Who wins? All right, John Jones versus Verdum. You know, circumstance and context matters in the question here, but I'm going to go John Jones. Uh, Cormier versus Weidman. I'll go Cormier. That's a tough one, though. Edgar versus Dillashaw. Man, that's a tough one, too. Jesus, these are good questions. Um, I'll go Edgar. Uh, Rockhold versus Gustafson. I'll go Rockhold. That's another tough one, boy. Pettis versus Aldo. Man, I guess Aldo? I don't know. Wonderboy versus Condit. I like Wonderboy in that one. Lawler versus Romero. I'll say Romero. I like uh, see McDonald versus Tumanov. Man, that's a... Stupid good fight right there. I'll say McDonald. Uh, Diaz versus Brown. Nick Diaz versus Matt Brown. I'll say Diaz. Uh, Chandler versus Gaethje. Chandler. Hector Lombard versus Habib. Uh, we'll probably still say Habib. Y'all might laugh at that. Hendricks versus Maya. Mm, tough one, man. We'll see how Maya does against Matt Brown. I'd probably go Hendricks, but that's really tough. And then Bendo versus Woodley. Man. 
I might go Bendo in that one, believe it or not. Pettis t- tweeted saying that he has a fight in April. Is Nate Diaz the obvious option for as a Pettis opponent? Certainly hope so. You know, they, they give him another wrestle boxer. I don't know what they're thinking. But uh, a Pettis fight to me seems manageable, seems doable, seems appropriate. Um, you can sell it. Um, it's still got big stakes. It'll be a fan-friendly kind of fight. Um, tough fight for Diaz. But, you know, I think he likes his chances in that fight. So let's see what he can do. Aljamain Funkmaster Sterling. Now that he has officially re-signed with the UFC, who would you like to see him fight next? Do you see him as a future title challenger? What do you think about his ceiling as a prospect? Great question. Wow. You know, being here in um, in Houston, I've tried to get as much information as I can about it. Um, you know, and obviously Bellator officials are pretty mum about the thing. But from what I understand, it what I'm hearing, and I can't confirm any of this, of course, but what I'm hearing is that they liked Sterling and would be happy to sign him under the right conditions. But I think there's a common theme between the Sterling situation and the Overeem situation. It's not that they didn't want their services. It's that those guys, Overeem and Sterling, had a certain idea about what their value was in the marketplace or at least what they wanted out of Bellator if they were going to go that route. Right? You may have a fighter that says, I'll take X if I'm going to fight in the UFC because there may be some reasons to get more money down the road. There might be better exposure. I might have certain career goals. If I'm going to go to Bellator, that's fine, but I might want to take X plus 20% of X. right? I, uh, I'll go to Bellator, but you got to pay me a little bit more to do it. Um, and I don't know that that was the case necessarily, but all I mean to say is my understanding was if, if there was a different price point, they would have taken him. But um, I don't know that they ever found the right price point. Now, what that is and what it ended up being, I don't know. Um, but that's my understanding. Everyone's like, well, they had no interest in, in Sterling. Well, I, that's not what I'm hearing is quite correct. What I'm told is that, or what I'm hearing anyway, is that um, Sterling and his manager had a certain price in mind and that it was basically a non-starter. Um, but had it been a different price point, they maybe would have had expressed more interest. Um, I'll see if I can get Scott Coker to confirm that and talk more about it. But that's sort of what I'm hearing about that. So it wasn't like when he came on the market, they were like, we're just not interested in you. It's not quite right. Uh, it's just they weren't interested in the price that he thought he was worth. Um, so, who would I like to see him fight next? I think the Thomas Almeida fight's kind of interesting. Um, there's lots of good fights you can have for Sterling. Anyone in the top five, really, would be kind of great. Uh, but to me, that Thomas Almeida fight would just be a barn burner and a real test for, for who's next. And I don't think it would kill off either guy as a future contender because they are so young and they have such a bright future. So, that's kind of the fight I think should be made. Uh, do you see him as a future title challenger? What do you think about his ceiling as a prospect? I look, I think the the, the, the real interesting part about Sterling, because he's different than Overeem and he's different than Henderson. Overeem, K1 champion, Dream champion, Strikeforce champion. Uh, knocking on the door of a UFC title shot. Ben Henderson, uh, you know, a guy who wore the UFC title strap for a while. Um, if I'm not mistaken, did he wear the WC? I can't even remember. This is what I'm talking about, the aspartame, if he wore the WC belt. But in any case, had experienced the highest level of the sport, guys in their 30s. Um, they had already sort of done something a little bit. They're more of a known commodity that I think makes them, A, more expensive, but B, you know, more of a known market value. The interesting thing in MMA, and I was thinking about this yesterday, at the very low end, someone getting into the UFC, at the very high end, say Conor McGregor, someone asks you, what is a fighter worth? In those two scenarios, you can answer that question. A guy coming in, 
roughly 8-8, eight and 10-10 eight, ten and ten is about what the market bears currently. At the very high end, if you sell a million pay-per-view buys, points, Reebok sponsorship, you get a general sense of, of what they might be worth. Everyone in between, if someone says, what is a fighter worth? It's a very difficult question to answer. It's a little easier to answer with someone like Henderson. It's a little easier to answer with someone like Overeem. Guys who you've sort of seen, been battle-tested, you really kind of know. The truth about Sterling is not that, the again, people are like, well, did he ask for too much money? Did Was Bellator too cheap? It's very speculative with him. Could Does he seemingly have the talent to go and become a UFC champion? Yes. Yes, he does. He seems to have that ability. Could he be a guy that winds up contesting for a title and never getting it, and maybe we kind of overhyped him a little bit? I don't know why that's an, an unfair uh, option to consider. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I don't know that I can eliminate that from the possibilities either. Um, we know he's top five. But beyond that, we don't really know if he's top three or top two or the guy. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. And so I think what Bellator was looking for was, if we put you on TV in April, what kind of ratings will you do? And Sterling's not that guy. Um, Henderson, much more that guy. Overeem, certainly that guy, had he had he signed. You can see the difference there a little bit. So how far can he go? Anyone who tells you they know for sure just doesn't really, they're just making things up. MMA is a... MMA prospecting, prospecting in sports generally is hard. MMA prospecting, I feel like, is very, very difficult. There are some guys that are no-brainers, but most guys, even really good ones, you just don't know. You just don't know. The only ones you can ever really truly be semi-certain about are the ones who are battle-tested but not shop-worn. Someone like Ben Henderson. He is not shop-worn, but he is battle-tested. He is experienced. You, you just know a lot more about him, you know? Rampage returns to Bellator. Who would you like to see him fight? Would you like to see him fight the winner of Kimbo versus Dada 5000? No. Uh, <laughs> the, Kimbo and and Defeer should not be fighting anyone legitimate. And certainly we can all agree that um, Rampage is in the twilight of his career, but he's a legit fighter. right? I mean, even if he doesn't train, he's a better fighter than those guys by a million miles. Like, it's not even in the same universe. So, no. Like, let's not ever have that conversation. If you're going to do the freak show fights, you do them. But you don't do them and then say, ooh, could he fight somebody really legit? You know, uh, even even an older fighter. No. You just can't do that. Remember, if you're an organization that says this is where the best fight the best, you shouldn't really be doing freak show fights, although you probably will a little bit. If you're an organization that's you've never heard Bellator say this is where the best fight the best, They've said we've got some of the best fighters in the world and some of the best personalities in the world, and that's sort of their angle. But if you've got a guy on it, like a Chandler, on a real track, you never want to pull him off that track to do something else. And again, you know, Rampage is in a slightly different position, but I would be very uncomfortable with either of those guys fighting Rampage, to be perfectly honest. Um, I mean, less so Kimbo, I suppose, but even then, I wouldn't, I wouldn't love it. Um, but as for Rampage's next step, I think you could do a Tito fight. It would be kind of good. You could do a fight versus Fedor if you can make it happen. Um, you could do a fight with... Uh, he probably doesn't want to fight Phil Davis. You could do a Mo rematch. You could do a Linton... Uh, you could do a... Um, depending on what happens with the winner of uh, the next light heavyweight strap with Liam McGeary. You could do a fight with Liam McGeary. Liam McGeary and Rampage would be a fun fight. Super fun fight. 
Um, so you could do that. You know, there's, there's you have a you have a number of different possibilities with Rampage. I think that's way more. You know, even as an older guy, even as a guy who you know certainly not the best he's ever been, that's much more appropriate for his skill level. He's, he was he is uh, and was certainly a world class fighter. I, you don't if they're gonna put Kimbo on, put Kimbo on, but the two universes should not should not mix. Would you consider doing a pre-fight breakdown video for a card the day before the event? Call it the Friday night breakdown. Kind of like how Faraz Zahabi does a pre-fight analysis on, and Q&A on his YouTube channel for the big UFC fight. Well, I don't want to get in the way of some of our other content here. You'll note that you know the day before a big fight for a UFC fight, we do a preview show. Now, we don't do a preview show for an event we don't go to, so maybe there might be an option there. I don't know that we're sending a big crew to Pittsburgh um, for that fight night card, so maybe we'll, I could do one for that kind of thing. I don't know. Um, I'm doing more video on my Facebook page, so you can get at me, uh, facebook.com slash, Jesus Christ, facebook.com slash, I think, Luke T Sports, um, and I'm doing live video on there all the time. I'm doing it on the MMA fighting page as well. So I'm not ruling it out, but I don't know that's at the top of my list to do a Friday night breakdown like that. Just being real. Uh, UC MMA on Fight Pass. Luke, I heard that Fight Pass was going to gain access to UC MMA. Have you heard anything new regarding that? I have not, unfortunately. Not saying it's not true, just haven't heard it. Uh, how awesome would an MMA beat-esque fight breakdown and analysis show consisting of the top minds in MMA be? I was thinking Greg Jackson, Faraz Hoppy, Dominic Cruz, and Dan Hardy. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't need to tell you that would rock. Uh, fortunately, Dan's doing stuff like that currently with the Unibet stuff. Um, for some of those shows uh, on the uh, UFC, uh, um, it's not on the UK channel. I think it's on the YouTube channel for UFC, but certainly they focus on UK fights or bigger ones. But Dan Hardy already does that. With uh, uh, they're, they're really they're quite excellent. Dominic Cruz gives some analysis right when he does the desk stuff. Faraz, you just mentioned previously, he does the YouTube stuff. Now Greg Jackson uh, is a little bit harder to reach, but yeah, I mean to answer your question, who wouldn't want to get those guys? to break that stuff down that almost would be too much because i would rather segment those guys out rather than put them all on the same panel i'd rather have like one or two on a panel and then a different panel on one or two so that you can let 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 each guy's thoughts breathe and have room and space because they've got a lot of perspective and they got a lot of interesting things to say and you wouldn't want to miss out on that by compacting it all together um that's why a technique talk is almost typically, I think only one or two times I've had it been like one guy and then I've added in a couple of other perspectives. Most of the time, what I like to do is just get one guy because even that one guy will have a lot, a lot of interesting things to say. This is an interesting question. Um... Luke, could you break down a fight between Wonder Boy and Michael Venom Page? I would love to see how these two fight. Who do you think would win? I like. I think their styles would be excellent for each other. You know, we have not seen a, two guys at an elite level do the point fighting thing to each other um, in MMA. Now, of course, you've seen it a million times, and I don't think their two styles are a little bit different. Um, I think MVP has done a little bit more of the point fighting stuff versus. Um, 
Thompson has done a little bit more full contact uh, kickboxing. Be that as it may, they have similar uh, appreciations for distance, similar use of it, and uh, both put a healthy premium on hitting and then not getting hit in a way that a lot of other fighter, fighters don't. Um, how would it go? Wow. Well, certainly Thompson is the more credentialed of the two in MMA. I mean, let's just sort of be real about that. Assuming he didn't take it to the ground and they just fought on the feet, because if you add in the ground element, I think Thompson wins pretty handily. If you take that out and then they competed, boy, it'd be tough to say. Um, Page is quicker and covers distance more quickly, but I believe the guy who has the more tried and true attacks is Thompson. He has much more reliable combinations. He has less... A little bit, believe it or not, a little bit less flash, a little bit more pedestrian relative to the kind of things that MVP throws. But um, I think his stuff is higher percentage. MVP does a lot of stuff that is a little bit higher risk, higher reward if it lands. Thompson's not quite that way. Thompson's much better about trying to establish conditions, establish conditions, you know, throwing something unorthodox, throwing something unorthodox, set it up, set it up, set it up, and then attack at a much more opportune time. MVP is a little bit more, if I can blitz you now, I will. And if I can blitz you again, I will. Um, Even if it means he can get caught on the counter. So he hasn't faced anyone who has made him have to pay for that kind of thing yet. Most of what people want to do, like Nashawn Burrell, they just want to tie him up and push his back against the fence. You know, it's interesting. People are like, wow, MVP is being brought along slowly. Why isn't this guy fighting someone legit? I don't think he's being brought along improperly, to be honest. I think that Nashawn Burrell fight was indicative of a lot of where he's at. He has a long way to go. Stephen Thompson had a long way to go when he went to the UFC, but even then he was further ahead in my my estimation. MVP's style is very much, there's a lot of movement required to make it work. And certainly that's the case that space benefits Thompson. But Thompson doesn't, doesn't need these long rushes in and out in the same way that MVP does. Um... So I would ben- I would I would think that anything could happen. Either of those guys could get caught, but I really think that Thompson would win. And again, for MVP, I, I'm a big believer that he needs to find a way to better adapt his style to MMA, and he's on that path. And I think he will. Um, and he's got tremendous use of reach, of course, but he still takes a lot of risks and he uses a lot of sweeping movements. So here's an interesting question, right? I'm not endorsing it. This is their words, not mine, but it's worth acknowledging. How tired are you of Rousey's emotionally immature 13-year-old girl melodrama? How do people not see directly through her transparent personality? All it takes is to see her phony, put-on mean mug during her entrance. Why is the media glad-handedly entertaining the hissy fits of this petulant child and further endorsing and lauding her behavior. I will say, it is interesting to me that Cam Newton was blasted for being a sore loser, and and Rousey is not. Um, now, you could say, well, Rousey's not being blasted because um, you know she's showing real emotional distress. And to that end, I would agree. But all losers face emotional distress. Um, in that sense, she's not necessarily unique. Now, I don't mean to underplay the suicide comments or to contradict what I said earlier, what she said is worthy of being evaluated by a medical professional. Not by me, but by a medical professional. I would, I would recommend that she see someone for something, for those kinds of 
things that she expressed. That said, um, what this person here is articulating is something I'm seeing a lot of. Um, that she has these emotions she just can't seem to control in the way that a teenage or preteen uh, girl or boy would suffer from. Um, and I'm not here to tell you you're wrong necessarily about that. What I am trying to do is provide context that holding on to those kinds of things, they might be her engine of greatness. You're saying, well, Luke, other fighters don't have to do that. They don't have to resort to that kind of thing. They're able to be mature and speak in a way that is respectful and handle losing with a certain amount of dignity and graciousness and without falling apart in ways that Rousey does. And I would not tell you you're wrong. Who could tell you you're wrong? Look at someone like Daniel Cormier who has suffered crushing loss after crushing loss. Many, many victories, of course, but losing has been a key component. Losing in big, in big opportunities has been a key component to his career. He's had to learn how to do that. And a lot of these guys don't want to learn how to do that, but it's an inevitability. Um, but the truth is, you have to wonder how much Rousey's, as you call it, being petulant, how much that is her engine of, of greatness. That rage she seems to have uh, is not very pleasing to witness or deal with. But I wonder if it's what makes her her. You know... I find it sort of absurd and almost comical that she's out there trying to trademark F them all. It's like, you are not a victim. I got news for you. In the totality of people in this world who are victims, <laughs> I have a very hard time grouping Ronda Rousey among them, uh, despite whatever hardships she may have experienced in her life. Um, and yet she sees herself that way. And that may be off-putting to you, but I wonder if that's the sort of thing that makes her get up one more time and one more time, and do one more rep, and do more grip fighting when she was in judo, and do more competitions, and do more sit-ups, and never letting ever someone get the best of her. It might be off-putting to witness the way in which she lets those things manifest as personality traits. It's not always the case that healthy, productive personality traits are the things that cater to sports or professional success. Um... If these things were utterly irrelevant to her success in clearly identifiable ways, you might have more of a point. I'm not here to tell you that you have to like Ronda Rousey or think she's the most you know, mature woman you've ever seen in your life. But I would be very, very hesitant to say, well, those things you see are entirely unrelated and, in fact, a hindrance to her ability to compete. I, would, I think the two are directly related. I don't think it's an act. I think she is a little bit emotionally underdeveloped. And maybe if she accelerates that she'll still be as competitive but there's also a part of me that really looks at who she is and the rage she seems to have for the world um and for her peers and for anyone who she believes to be in her way even if it's like not actually even if it's imaginary and it's not even real i still believe that she holds on to those things in a way that propels her forward I'll tell you, like, just personally speaking, this is a chat where you ask me for my views of the world, so I'll just tell you some of my views on the world. Um, there are times, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making this up, there are times where I simply don't know how to be happy. There are times when, um, you know, when you're, when, when, like, ask yourself this. Under what conditions do you do your best work? truly your best work 
think about the best things you've ever done, either in your academic life or your professional life, and what were the conditions that made that possible? Now, here's the truth. Your answer will not be the same as mine or the same as Rousey's or Overeem's or the guy who founded Starbucks or this hotel or anyone else. There'll be a range of answers there. Different things work for different people. Some of the responses you'll get, they'll point to things that are more sustainable over the long run. But I'm just telling you personally, I do my best work when people uh, discount me. I do my best work when I feel like I'm being looked over. I do my best work when people, uh, I, I think, I believe, don't take what I'm doing seriously enough. And you may say that's, that's stupid and that's immature and that's not a way you could ever imagine your life going. And I would not tell you to emulate what I am doing. I'm just trying to tell you there was a moment in time where I believed in what I was doing and I was not getting any recognition for it. And I have never in my life stepped on the gas harder. And to this day, I can, even in here today, I can still feel a little bit of that rage of being, of being looked over. I, you guys know this, man. If you've ever been watching this chat, I make terrible first impressions. Most people, when I hate it, I hate this to be true. Most people, when I meet them, or a lot of people anyway, find me to be a detestable POS. But the truth is, I have an ability to, over time, win some people back. When you talk about Rousey having this emotionally immature 13-year-old girl melodrama and her being a hissy fit and a petulant child, I understand what you're identifying. It is obnoxious to sit here and watch this from my vantage point. But it could just be the case that these negative things that you perceive are the very things that have made her such a tremendous success. Now, at some point, I don't know how long she wants to hold on to these kinds of things. I don't know how healthy it is to hold on to those things. At some point, you got to transition into adulthood in a real and um, responsible way. And that goes for me and her and you out there watching. But the truth is, what works for you, it may be healthy when you're happy and you get the best night's sleep and you're eating right and everything else. For me, it is when I am angry. When I am angry. When I'm angry at the world, and even if it's paranoia and it's not real, I do my best work when I am furious. I can't do work in a happy state. It doesn't sit me out of my chair. But if I perceive something that makes me angry, I will type on this keyboard until my fingers bleed. Everyone's different. Anthony Pettis versus Nate Diaz is being rumored to be headlining a Vegas fight pass card the day before UFC 197. Who would you take in that fight? I think we already discussed that. I would probably take Pettis. But you know what? <laughs> I mean, he's been, he's been, I think it's fair to say, Pettis is a tremendous talent. But wow, he's been underachieving. So I would not discount, sorry, I would not discount uh, Diaz's chances by any stretch of the imagination. Let's see. Uh, Alistair Overeem opponent in Holland. Alistair confirmed on Twitter he'll be headlining the main event, but the opponent was yet to be announced with a lot of heavyweight already booked up. A lot of heavyweights, excuse me, already booked up. Um, there's only a Brown rematch, Kane Velasquez, and even more down the ladder like a Derek Lewis. I don't expect an Overeem-Kane fight on a fight night in Holland. It seems like the Brown rematch is the one they're going to go with. You can't put Kane 
and Holland. It just doesn't make any sense. If he can get back soon enough, they might bump Stipe. So if they bump Stipe out and bring Kane back in, you could do Stipe versus Overeem. But who knows what they're going to do. Someone says, uh, so I guess there won't be a detailed breakdown of Dada versus Slice. I mean, look, we're going to do a preview show, and uh, I'll do predictions. But, I mean, here's the only thing you can – I think you can do a preview of any fight, even if it's two old dads in the driveway fighting over, like, you know, who got their paper delivered on whose property. The only thing you can really say about this in watching those guys yesterday, and you guys saw the video, and I'm going to ask them about it. I saw people openly mocking the hand technique of uh, – of, Defear, Dada Harris, Dada 5000, Defear Harris, with good reason. Um, Kimbo's technique is a lot cleaner, a lot. But Kimbo can be sparked out early. So here's what I would say. If the fight ends in two minutes, oh, the first two minutes, I definitely, oh, how about this? The first minute, I favor uh, Defear Harris, Dada 5000. After that, it's Kimbo's fight to lose. But early on, even if a guy is wild and coming out there, I'm telling you, if your defense isn't tight, you can get touched up. You know, a good fighter would have no problems handling that. Um, and again, Kimbo has the cleaner technique, but you've seen it, man. Kimbo can be touched up early and 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 get wobbled. His chin is not is not awesome. Um, that's all you can really say about it. Beyond that, there's no way to really measure what the guys are going to do, or you know, who's going to have the first omoplata in the fight between. Dada 5000 and Kimbo. Of course, this is a ridiculous exercise. But I will say, you know, that first 30 seconds to a minute is going to be, is going to tell us a lot. I'll also say both guys were really tired and sweaty after barely working out. So I don't expect a lengthy bout in this particular case. Pardon me. Excuse me. True, false. If possible, with some comments. All right. Frankie Edgar has more chances of being a three-division champ, lightweight, featherweight, bantamweight, than McGregor, welterweight, lightweight, and featherweight. False. Michael Chiesa will finish 2016 as a top-five lightweight per his goal. Hmm. I'll say true. Despite the odds... Bisping has more chances of beating Anderson Silva than DC beating Jones. I would say true. With Overeem and Sterling re-signing with the UFC, we can now say that Benson Henderson's move to Bellator was an isolated case. False. Super false. This was really interesting to me. I saw people being like, oh, Bellator lost in free. I mean, they, they, they got Henderson and that was a win, and uh, but they lost this free agency battle. I mean... It would be one thing if there was a real bidding war that had taken place where a Bellator said, okay, we're going to get this guy. And UFC was like, no, you're not. And they went up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And eventually they lost. Then they lose. But even if Bellator did lose that, what happened? Well, the fighter would have gotten paid. In both the cases of Sterling and Overeem, I'm imagining they got a raise in part because Bellator exists. They didn't sign with Bellator. Bellator would have been, it seems like, from what I understand, would have been happy to have them but didn't necessarily share their perspective about value. And I'm not here to tell you if that value perspective is correct. Frankly, I think the not signing Sterling was a bit weird, personally. But okay, whatever. Neither here nor there. Um, 
But how do you lose a battle you're not really trying to win? To me, the real winners of free agency were the fighters. was free agency itself. Overeem got a new contract. That was probably better than his last one. Sterling got one that was probably better than his last one. And Benson Henderson got one that was better than his last one. That's how free agency is supposed to work. Guys should go where they're going to get the best deal, and they should get a better deal than one they had because there is at least some competition for what they're doing. That's how this is. That's what we're. Do, that's what this is all about, right? So yeah, I mean, and and frankly, UFC should win the majority of these battles, right? <laughs> They've got more money. There's a lot more to offer. Uh, for the most part, you know. Again, everyone's situation will be different, but if they're not winning those, you're like, something's up. So so I don't know what the issue is here. This to me was like, would it have been? interesting to see Sterling and Overeem go over there in this huge wave, sure, but I, you know, this is not going to be one of those situations where Rome was built in a day. It's just not going to be that way. And, you know, what's interesting is both companies are not trying to have this, like, bloodletting battle, this internecine squabbling. It was pretty clear that Benson Henderson was probably going to go to Bellator, and they let him go. And it was pretty clear that, um, um, just given the price tags, and especially you know Sterling and being young in his career, there's a better chance they're going to end up with the UFC, and they did. So it seems like Bellator didn't really double down on him. This this is how the prospect is supposed. To, this is how the process is supposed to work, right? This is what's supposed to happen. It's not the case that Bellator or UFC is supposed to snatch up every single free agent. They're all, each organization is only supposed to get the ones they really want. Um, now, I don't know what's going to happen with Mitrione or some of these other people that are fighting out their contracts, but I would not at all look at Henderson's move to Bellator as an isolated case. Um, more guys are going to re-sign with UFC than don't, and that's okay. But that doesn't make Benson's case, you know, bizarre or unique. Standing guillotine is a dying technique. It was never a good one. It, it should have never lived to begin with. Lawler and Verdun will lose their belts in 2016. False. For size matters or just technique, Johnny Hendricks can't beat no one in the... Is that English? For size matters or just technique, Johnny Hendricks can't beat anyone in the middleweight top five. probably false. Askren would be a UFC top 10 today. True. Depending on how good McGregor and Jones perform in other divisions, more champions will call for super fights. I certainly hope so. Overeem would win rematches against Brown, Bigfoot, and Rothwell. Probably true. Probably. But you know what? That Rothwell fight took place in a small cage. And I don't think you can ignore that fact. God, a bunch of true-false today. Jeez. All right. True-false. Nick Diaz. If Nick Diaz wins his return match and Robbie Lawler is still the champ, they will do a rematch. True. Will Brooks's next fight will be in the UFC. False. UFC signs Bibiano Fernandez in 2016. False. Gustafson Jones rematch for the title will happen in 2016. False. Oh, Gustafson Jones. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe true. Fedor wins his next fight and moves to the UFC. Are you serious? 
Bellator signs a twenty in twenty sixteen a bigger free agent than the UFC than Ben Henderson. One more time. Bellator signs in twenty sixteen a bigger free agent from the UFC than Ben Henderson. Yeah, I mean it's only February, so sure. Jake Shields moves to Bellator in twenty sixteen. I don't think they're in the Jake Shields business. Rampage Jackson fights the winner of McGeary Davis. That would be a f- I would love that. If it's Davis, you know, Rampage probably doesn't want that fight. But if it's McGeary, he definitely does. Vanderlei Silva fights Chael Sonnen in Ryzen this year. <laughs> I'll say false. Can you, com- can you competently draw a cursive letter Z? Uh, I think I can. one UFC 194 buy rate UFC 194 supposedly did 1.2 million buys which is more than UFC 193 with Rousey which was estimated to be around 1.1 million buys I find this to be pretty amazing considering the star power of Rousey granted UFC 194 had more promotion and was a better card overall but it is still damn impressive what is your take on these numbers and Connor's ability to draw these numbers when he wasn't even a champion yet yeah no it's uh I mean, we want me to say it's you guys know about as much of this as I do. It's phenomenal. It's incredible. Um, you know, Rousey had the fact that she drew one point one one point one million in Australia. Um, that's very different than doing that over here. Um, she did she did one point one in Australia for what was perceived to be a squash match. That's also interesting. You know, Aldo versus McGregor. It wound up being a squash match in a way, but um, I think there was a belief that that was going to be a really tough, long, hard fight and. This was a real rivalry, and this wasn't just this was the best featherweight versus the best hype at the time, right? So there was a lot of ingredients making that fight what it was. Rousey taken on home, no one would give home a, a chance. Remember, Rousey was on the cover of Ring magazine and everything else, and all this nonsense, and and uh, you know, and she did all that in Australia. That's pretty remarkable, you know. It's pretty remarkable. So um, they're they're both special for different reasons. They're both amazing accomplishments, and we're lucky to be living in a time where we can have back-to-back pay-per-views do over a million pay-per-view buys. Um, that's not going to happen very often, and when it does, we should be thankful for it. All right. Uh, EBI on Fight Pass. Good morning, Luke. Now that EBI will be streaming on Fight Pass, do you foresee a time when current or even retired UFC fighters would participate? Of course. I mean, this will be up to Eddie Bravo, but I'm assuming there will be some market for that. Could this also open the door for additional grappling event streams like ADCC or Beat the Streets? You know, you have to think. I mean, EBI made the leap. Um, they were initially, I think, with Budo videos, and I wonder if they were with Flow Grappling for the last one. Um, you know, I like Budo videos and I like Flow Grappling, but they put everything, or at least a lot of things, behind paywalls. And this is behind a paywall too, but this is behind a paywall that I already pay for. For other purposes, this is just extra bonus content, really. And and we should have a discussion about what it means for Fight Pass to be adding this. People keep thinking, oh, they're going to add the Glory Super Fight series, and they're adding EBI. Don't get me wrong; these are valuable properties for the consumer in the space. I I am not in any way downplaying that. What I am saying, though, is the real test of Fight Pass when you really know it's about to turn a corner. I I don't know; it'll be these complementary additions. It'll be the direct UFC product funneling through, like in Anderson Silva versus Bisping, which people are like, why is that on Fight Pass? If you're asking about a fight, like, hey, why is this on Fight Pass? 
that's the kind of thing you should be monitoring. If they put a Cain Velasquez on Fight Pass, if they put a John Jones on Fight Pass, that's the real test for Fight Pass's future growth as a home for um, for the UFC's premier. To the extent that Fight Pass becomes a home for their premier content, that's the real question about the future of Fight Pass. Um, these are important developments, but in and of themselves, it's just giving content to fans who are kind of already there. Um, and, and you know they're trying to get they're trying to get more subscribers, but it's that same niche group that's different than a casual MMA fan being like, man, they're putting Ronda Rousey on Fight Pass. I guess I have to be a Fight Pass subscriber now. You know, that's a little bit different, right? Um, but sure, I, I I think that you know if EBI makes the leap. Um, and the streams look good, and people are like, well, you know what? Rather than trying to have our own subscriber base and our own infrastructure, we'll just use everything that Fight Pass already has. And you know, I guess Fight Pass would take their own cut, but you know, there's a lot of costs you probably save as a promoter um, by working with them already. So, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I don't think this is the last grappling event you'll see on on Fight Pass. This is probably only the first. Let's see. Resign, not resign, but re-sign, and make more money as a champ. It seems like Benson, Sterling, and Ream may have all gotten similar terms to their contracts offered by UFC where they might not get as much upfront, but incentives, being a champion, can yield much more. It would make much it would make sense for the two guys who did resign because they're only a fight or two away, if even that. Then you can look at what Bendo had to consider, and it makes complete sense given the way UFC viewed or maybe just portrayed him as a guy on the decline. If UFC uses this type of negotiation with all fighters from here on out, do we see more fighters walk away? It makes complete sense for the UFC to do so, but at the same time, the UFC, the way that UFC books fights could screw guys out of their contracts. Let's say Reem fights one, once more and expects a title shot after he wins. Then Stipe KOs Verdum and an immediate rematch is booked. Reem might need to take another fight when he was expecting a title fight, and if he loses, that money slips away. If Frankie Edgar has that type of deal now, you can understand his frustration. Yeah, this will be very interesting to see how it goes. I think it's a great question. You know, as you guys remember, Benson Henderson was like, I don't want my money being dependent on promoter whim. I want it to be as as declared and uh, guaranteed as possible. And that's a very understandable concern. Um, you know, um, now that's every, every promotion is going to have a situation where if you have a non-title fight, you're going to get X amount. And then if you have a title fight or you're a title holder and you're defending your title, it'll be 2X or 3X or, you know, or whatever, something like that. That's that's going to be common no matter what. Um, so the UFC is not unique in that way. It may have just been the proportion of it that for Benson, it was for non-title fights, you'll get X. And for title fights, you might get 10X. Uh, but 10X seems impossible and whatever X is is not enough. Bellator could have been, you know, we'll give you 2X for non-title fights. And then we'll just give you three X for um, title fights, where there's not. Yes, it's a greater load for the title fights, but you're going to get a lot more in a way that is not reliant upon that. So understand, there's going to be a bump in pay no matter what. Um, but I wonder how much that was disqualifying for um, Sterling and Overeem. Overeem, I'm guessing his price tag is just heavy no matter what. So that might be why there was not a lot of discussion. Um, with Sterling, 
I wonder, I wonder how much he was asking. You know, I wonder. Um, I bet in non-title money it was not a lot. I wonder how much it was in title money. I don't know the answer to that. But that this is again what I'm getting to. What is a fighter worth? What's he worth? And more to that point, what can a promotion afford? What do they see as a reasonable expense? What do they see as um, being saddled with heavy salaries for fighters or you know payment structure? It's a difficult question. It's a really difficult question to answer, and it's really only we don't have a lot of information to base this off of. Here's what a top five guy at bantamweight who hasn't fought for a title yet and is you know young and 26, 27. This is about what he's worth. We don't we don't really know the answer to that, and so well, all we hear about is here's what a guy asks. Here's what a promotion thinks they're worth. Either they make a deal or they don't. But that doesn't tell us if the guy was asking too much. That doesn't ask. That doesn't tell us if the promotion's being cheap. We're 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 working in a space where there's a lot, and I mean a lot, of incomplete information. As you can see, my nose is very runny. see what else we got several weeks ago when answering a question in relation to you have N Diaz versus McGregor I'm assuming you mean Nate you stated McGregor could outstrike Diaz but not outbox him I don't know if I did I say that I don't remember, I don't remember that shocker I don't remember that could you explain the difference in how outstriking as opposed to outboxing would look in a potential fight? Well, that's pretty simple. I mean, let's remove McGregor and Diaz because I frankly don't know if I – I don't remember saying that, but you might be right. Whatever. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I don't remember. Uh, but this is real simple. What what constitutes striking? Everything from inside the clinch range to all the way to boxing range to then kickboxing range. Um, you know, Stephen Thompson working on the outside. He's not going to box you up. I mean, he might use his hands a little bit, um, but that's he'll use non-traditional boxing techniques. He'll use non-boxing techniques to, with his hands. He'll use a, a wider array of kicks. Of uh, he'll use to keep distance at ranges that have nothing to do with kickboxing. Um, someone like uh, Anderson Silva, Rich Franklin, he'll tie you up in the clinch. This is, you know, clinching is some form of wrestling, I suppose. But really, what he's doing is he's just battering you with strikes. You know, overhand elbows and knees up the gut, and he's pulling and turning and then hitting you again and um, everything from there to all the way out there. That's that's all that's all striking. Versus boxing is just that boxing range right here, right? And more than that, just that range, the traditional boxing techniques, things that boxers are taught to do, reactions they're taught to put in, combinations they're taught to use. Some of that is not really valuable in an open space striking environment. A lot of it is. Here's a good question. It didn't get a lot of wrecks, but I'm going to answer it. The UFC's best financial year put them in close revenue proximity to the Dallas Cowboys. Given the UFC's significantly larger role in most of their marketing, merchandising, regulatory, and production costs being internal operating expenses instead of being shared with other teams in a league, 
I wonder how much money there is to increase a fighter pay while maintaining a reasonable net income percentage to allow them to handle the volatility of their business. From the perspective of the UFC, do you think a smaller roster is the most viable solution for them to increase fighter pay, improve the quality of the product, and protect their bottom line? This is an important, important question, and it only got, with one of my recommendations, only two. Um, there's no denying that if people think that what's going to happen is, let's say these fighters win their lawsuit and, you know, they open up the books and they get everything they want and there's a union and a, and and they go and have collective bargaining and their salaries. People think that these salaries or these, these fighter payouts are just going to like triple, quadruple. I don't think that's the case. I think what you're going to see is a roster cut to begin with. They won't be able to support all those guys. That's the first thing. Um, how much of a roster cut, we can have some estimates about, but... You know, certainly 20% would, would not in any way be, I think, um, too much, maybe more. Um, I don't know if there'll be a decline in the number of events, but that's something to consider as well. Um, so there's that. Um, or they could do less fights per event. You have to sort of consider what will happen there. But fighter salaries would rise, in some cases significantly. In other cases, probably not so much. There would probably be some kind of a based minimum. There would be a minimum based on seniority or how many fights you've had in the UFC or how many years you've been there, right? And that would give some kind of security. And that would certainly cut into Zufa profits, don't get me wrong. Um, but I, I, do, I, I should be clear that, again, I think some guys will probably experience, depending on how things work out, um, a dramatic rise in pay. But a lot of it's going to be about just creating minimums, about uh, giving guys access to money that they wouldn't otherwise get. So, for example, um, the fighters don't get a penny of the EA Sports money. They should get some of that. The fighters don't get any money from the Fox deal. Well, why not? NBA players get all the money from the NBA TV deals. Shouldn't these guys get money from TV deals? I think they should. That money would go to them as well. So, um, you know, how much would that increase? I don't know. Um, these are discussions we can have, but it would certainly make the product a little bit smaller. And that may make some of you uncomfortable. It does not make me uncomfortable at all. I think that personally speaking, and again, I'm not here to, I don't run Zufa. I don't, I don't make any choices. I think the product's a little bit bloated for my, for my tastes. Um, I think it would make the marketplace more competitive as a consequence, believe it or not. Uh, give promoters, other promoters more access to guys that people want to see. Um, or it might not do that. It, it might, if, there's a, if there was some way to get a fighter's union, here, here, here's my view on this. If there's no fighter's union, the best way is to get multiple promotions. If there's not multiple pr promotions, then the best way to get it is one promoter with safety net in place and protections through collective bargaining and fighter representation. So if there's that, then maybe actually, you know, I, I don't know what would happen to the rest of the other players in the space. It'd be something to consider and think about for another question another time. But, but yeah, um, the long story short to your question is, um, there would not be this huge boom in salaries for most. It would require a roster reduction, an increase in pay, an increase in how our guys get paid a different mechanism, um, and it would certainly shrink the product, but I think in a way that's pretty healthy and, frankly, ethical. Connor's BJJ, great question. I saw this one earlier. Uh-oh. What is this? 
Sorry, I'll hang on. All right. Connor's BJJ. What did you think of Faraza Hobby's recent analysis of the RDA McGregor fight? I feel like he and many others are looking past Connor and saying, yes, I'm sure Faraz Zahabi just doesn't take Connor McGregor's ability seriously. In saying his real chance lies in his left hand, but only in the early rounds, giving RDA the better odds if it goes past initial rounds. While I understand people's reasoning for thinking that Connor is screwed if he was taken down by RDA, given his top pressure, ground and pound, and excellent BJJ, is it wrong to have a gut feeling that Connor might shock RDA and the world off of his back, given the fact that Kavanaugh is no slouch in the BJJ department? Um, it's probably wrong to feel that way. <laughs> I mean, look, I can't tell you. You could say anything. Hey, um, <coughs> Connor will use the, the uh, Jeff Glover donkey guard and submit RDA. And I can't tell you that's wrong. I can only tell you that's pretty low percentage chance of that happening but it's not I can't tell you it's wrong I don't I don't know that it's wrong um here's what I think is the most likely thing to happen and I, I actually agree with most of what Faraz Zahabi said and then uh one, one little portion I didn't um if I would find the idea of RDA getting submitted from Connor's guard virtually impossible to happen it would take a miracle now um you can go look at a fight like how did um how did, uh, what was his name, uh, Bocek, Mark Bocek, how did he get submitted by um, Mac Danzig? Mac Danzig is not the jiu-jitsu player that Bocek is, not even close. But Bocek got touched up enough that he just wasn't in a position to resist the kinds of things that he would under normal jiu-jitsu conditions. So if that's what you're talking about, where if RDA is just beat to hell, and then, you know, manages to secure a takedown, but, you know, has got one eye cracked up and is tired and then succumbs to a triangle. Yes, that is much more realistic. But if we're talking about a scenario where neither guy is particularly hurt, maybe a little bit tired or something, RDA gets a takedown, is working the pass, and he gets subbed out from there, I find that to be almost the chance of that happening, almost zero. If he gets busted up real bad, that changes the equation a little bit, okay? But if we're talking just jujitsu versus jujitsu, Connor's going to get overwhelmed. That, that's not really up for debate. Now, here's where I disagree, and you're talking about Kavanaugh having good BJJ. He does, right? But, again, I mentioned this point before. You can go and train with Usain Bolt. You're not going to run much faster than you run. You're going to learn some things, of course. And, you know, Kavanaugh's a, Kavanaugh's a black belt, but... I don't know to what extent he has a decorated background in competition. Now, you don't need that to be a great, great coach. Understand that. You know, I look at Greg Jackson. He never fought in the UFC, and he coaches some of the best guys to their best abilities in the UFC. So so he's certainly a, 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 a capable coach and has that connection with McGregor that I don't think anyone else in the world could have. You know, they have a real special bond. Um, but just speaking realistically, you know, Halleck Gracie, I thought, once made a really good point. You know, guys in jiu-jitsu don't lose by accident. Okay, if you beat RDA up, you know, that changes his threshold for what he can and can't do. But if he's not busted up and Connor's on his back, the chance of Connor working something from his guard to submit RDA, I find to be virtually nil. As close to zero as possible. Can't say it's zero, but very, very little. Now, here's why I disagree with Faraz Ahabi a little bit. <laughs> if you guys didn't see the video, it's first of all, watch it because it's great. 
But what he says is he really thinks that left-handed McGregor is just maybe the most devastating left hand in all of, com- of MMA. I would say it's one of the most devastating left hands of all combat sports. That left hand is so potent, so incredible of Conor McGregor. The timing of it, the accuracy of it, the power of it, the, the use of range, it's all, you guys know the story. And so basically what he says for Azahabi is that in the first round, first two minutes of the second round, that's really going to be the story, is that left hand of McGregor. How much does that play a role in this fight? How much does RDA get around it? How much does he get hit by it? Conor McGregor's really, really accurate and awesome with it early on. But as the fight wears on, Zahabi argues, that's going to really favor um, Dos Anjos in a very heavy way. To the point where Dos An- or to the point where Zahabi says, if we're talking round threes, four, and five, you know, he thinks that if McGregor hasn't done something by then, it's 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 you know it heavily favors RDA, and I would basically agree with that except the one knock on the jiu-jitsu that I have for RDA. Everyone's like his jiu-jitsu is amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. It is, it is amazing. But it's really good for him to set up. He he is good about positional advancement for the most part, but he likes to use it as just a control mechanism on on top while you move underneath. He does have some good ground and pound. Actually, it's better than it used to be. But the point being is this. He, who has he submitted? Look, Kamal Shalarus after he hurt him and Terry Adam. And he he had to work to get Terry Adam. So you can have really good jiu-jitsu. That doesn't mean you have like lethal Frank Mir submissions. And I've made this point before. You know, you could say, wow, if if Chael Sonnen didn't, you know, if, if Anderson Silva didn't stop Chael Sonnen in the first and second round, he'd be hopeless by the third, fourth, and fifth. And yes, that win off of his back was a bit miraculous. But the point is this. In MMA, if you let a guy hang around, you're, 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 you're taking a risk. You're taking a risk. Because I would never say that the punching power, delivery, accuracy, and everything that McGregor possesses in the first 30 seconds will be the same at the end of the fifth round with 30 seconds left. This will clearly be a lesser version of himself. I think everyone would agree with that, right? He won't be exactly as good. But I, I and you know, and the more you get comfortable with someone's timing and taking them down, they mentally begin to break and you mentally begin to get very confident and you're just able to make better use of your own abilities. All that is true. But I, it worries me a little bit for, worries is not the strong word, is the wrong word. Letting a guy like McGregor, even in a diminished state, hang around into that fourth and fifth round, he's surviving on the ground, let's say, and you get stood up or he gets his his back to his feet. You should still be watching through your fingers in that fifth round if you're an RDA supporter. Because it doesn't what happens when McGregor connects? One time the fight changes. One time. One time is all he needs. You mean to tell me one time is all he needs in 25 minutes to potentially just turn the fight like that? You know, that to me is the bigger question. You know, letting him hang around like that is is real problematic for me. Real problematic, you know. Um, that's why I, I keep going back and forth because I can see RDA getting comfortable like he did against Pettis and, and, and just doing his thing, you know, and, and, and that being that. And he keeps his title and we all move on and he goes back to featherweight and, and that's that, but... RDA's jiu-jitsu is good. I would be very surprised if he submits McGregor. Very surprised. Because that would mean that would probably tell me that he had he hurt McGregor and then submitted him. And that's a tall order. Um 
it would not surprise me if he controls him for you know 25 minutes en route to a win. It would not surprise me if he controls him uh, and then eventually stops him with strikes. You know, um, but if you're asking me what's the most realistic way that Dos Anjos wins, for me, decision. That's the most realistic way for me that I see him winning. What's the most realistic way for McGregor to win? Probably TKO stoppage, right? Probably. Um, and he doesn't need a lot of time to do that. And so you mean to tell me you're going to give him a bunch of time? I don't know. That's the only When I was watching that video from Faraz, that was the only area where I disagreed. You let someone like Anderson Silva hang around for 25 minutes and eventually he will get you. You know, you let someone like Conor McGregor hang around for 25 minutes and eventually there's a good chance they're probably going to get you. If you're going to beat McGregor, you got to go and you got to break him here. You got to control him here and you got to put it on him. And maybe RDA is that guy, you know, RDA is not unaccustomed to sticking it to guys. So maybe he's the one. But the argument that, well, the longer it goes, it just becomes hopeless for McGregor. Mm, Certainly favors RDA generally, but not heavily, not heavily. Oh, it's 2.15, so let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. Let's see. True or false, John Jones' last fight at 205 is a super fight with Luke Rockhold. Wouldn't that be fun? I'll say true only because I hope it's true. Juan just got suspended for three years retroactive to June 2014. Initial thoughts. So he would be eligible June 2017. Wow, another year and a half. Oof. Um... Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I have any thoughts on that, except to say I'll try and get an interview with him here. How about that? Uh, how do you rate Marlon Moraes as a 135-er? I'd say he's top 10 in the world. Would he be in the top 10 or perhaps the top 5? Top 5 I have a hard time saying, but not top not top 10. What do you think of Messi's penalty kick? I don't care at all. Um Oh, yes. Let me give a shout-out to this person who um, you guys should follow on Twitter, James Burley. You can follow him at RJGears4992. That's the worst name on Twitter I've ever seen. It's impossible to, you know, it's not very handy. But, okay, my name's not that great either. That's being Luke Thomas. Uh, follow James Burley, RJGears4992. James reached out to me before the Thompson fight, and I get emails and direct messages all the time being like, Here's what's going to happen, bro. Here's what's going to happen, bro. You watch. Uh, Jose Aldo, TKO, first round with leg kicks. Call it, bro. Call it right now, bro. When the fight's over, bro, I'm going to come back and you got to acknowledge me, bro. And, like, you know, first of all, making a – let me just say something. Making a claim about one fight before it happens is not particularly interesting to me. you got to make a claim all down one card for months. Then we'll talk about your prescience levels, right? Because what is a prediction about? A prediction is about trying to establish your prescience about what's going to happen. So I just want to say that if you ever email me or something like that, I just delete it right away because I don't, I don't care. However, James Burley is interesting because just before the fight with Hendricks, uh, he made an incredible prediction that was like right on the money and generally either A, has interesting observations or B, uh, asks good questions, right? Which is all you can really want. Smart predictions, smart analysis, and when they don't know the answer, they're at least you can tell they're thinking about it in the right way. So follow James Burley, RJ Gears 4992 
really super smart fight fan who is uh, uh, fun to talk to. Okay, uh, is the UFC 196 card weaker than you thought it would be? I don't even care. With those top two fights, the rest of the fight cards could just be Dada 5,000 hitting pads, and I just I just wouldn't care. What are the legacy implications if Bisping beats Anderson? Man, that is like the most redemptive redemptive possibility in one moment. Uh, oh, God. Who is Jason Whitlock t- Twitter warring with? Sean King? That ought to be fun. All right. Um, it, it, it would be validating for Bisping in a way to say, look how many guys I fought that came close to beating it would be validating in a way that says look how many guys who are on steroids got unfair advantages it would be validating because Bisping who never got a title shot would beat the greatest guy maybe ever certainly in that weight class ever Um, it would just be massive it would be so massive like he could retire there and you could say I mean you could say now that Bisping's had a tremendous career but if he beats Anderson Silva and let's say stops him in the UK man I mean what a moment for him what a moment for him that would be woof How is Herschel Walker fighting situation different than CM Punk besides athletic ability? <laughs> uh, how is C- Anderson Silva's fighting in the UFC different than Dada 5000 competing in uh, Bellator except for fighting ability? Good question, and I'm happy to answer it. Do you think Bellator is losing fans by putting on these types of fights? I have not watched since 149 was booked. Uh, no, I can say definitively I've covered how many Bellator fights now, even going back to the Rebney era, like six of these now, something like that. Uh, I've never seen press like this for a Bellator event ever, ever. Uh, this is way more than before. Even the other Kimbo, um, Shamrock fight. This is, this is more than I've seen even for, uh, Dynamite. Quite the opposite. Like this, here's the truth about this, 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 uh, fight this weekend there are pockets of the hardcore community that all have different tastes right um bellator 149 is interesting in the sense that it's the first time that i can really think of where a main and co-main event on a national level promotion booked fights completely irrespective of hardcore fan interests so, yes, there are going to be some hardcore fans that say, no, 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 Luke, I like Kimbo and Dada. I, I, it's my favorite thing to watch or whatever. They, they don't have an objection to it. In fact, they might like it. And, and also, it's going to be the case that this person here may not want to watch this, but I think most of us will agree, even begrudgingly, some hardcore fans are just going to watch this no matter what. But if you ask yourself, what's the difference between this and like a Rousey fight where let's say she was still champion and she was, you know, defending her title in a bout, like I say, against Alexis Davis, what's the difference? I mean, that's a squash match, right? Like, who cares? Like, she's just going to go in there. It's going to be over in 30 seconds and and that's going to be that. The difference is that when Ronda competes, it's relevant for the sport. When, when, when Ronda competes, it's relevant for her division. When Ronda competes, it's relevant for, for, for everyone, even if it is a squash match. So that's a fight that you usually when the UFC puts on a fight and they're trying to reach the casual audience, they're doing it in a way, they're putting on a fight that magnifies the interest of the hardcore fan base writ large. Right? What 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 do the what do hardcore fight fans want to see? They want to see just about anything, but they want to see um, they want to see RDA versus McGregor. 
right? They want to see that. And so, of course, the hardcore fans are going to watch, but they're going to make that writ large, and they're going to get the rest of the casual fan base who, like, only watches UFC every once in a while to go along with it. Kimbo and Hoist turn that on its head. Because what Scott Coker is saying is, Scott Coker is saying, I want to get that same audience, and I don't care if this audience comes along or not. In fact, I'm, I'm betting that they will come along. Most of them, anyway. It's made all. It's 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 a it's a main event that is entirely not made for you. That is not reflective of your interest in MMA. That's what it is. And I can understand quite easily why many of you are like, "This sucks. I don't want to see it. I don't want." Then don't, by all means, like, I am not here to talk you into watching it. Believe me. Uh, there, my appetite for bad MMA is is fairly low as well. But it's not made for me. It's not made for you. It's made for them. It's made for them, and they just basically expect you to go along with it, which a bunch of you probably will. That's the reality here. Even when the UFC makes a main event that may, may you know, not a lot of doesn't make a lot of sense, what they're doing is they're taking the hardcore fan base interest and they're expressing it writ large. Now they have their gimmicks too, CM Punk, but that's not it's, that's few and far between. This is a main and a co-main event. Of people that would never get a shot in the UFC at this point, or not even in sniffing distance. But it's not made for you. It's not made for me. It's made for them. It's made for the audience that watches Spike, independent of watching Bellator. That's who this is for. It's not for us. And you could say, well, that that means they're going to lose fans. I doubt it. I doubt it. The truth of the matter is, and this is the ugly fact we have to confront about these freak show fights. Now, look, if something bad happens on Friday, which I am not saying is out of the realm of possibility at all, but if something bad happens, then there will be hell to pay. But if nothing bad happens, and God forbid nothing does bad does happen, um, there's basically not a lot of cost to this. It's not a real sustainable model for growth, but it doesn't hurt them short-term much that I can identify. There's more media here than I've ever seen for a Bellator fight. And like especially local media. The radio stations were here. The TV stations were here. I was like, what? Couldn't believe it, but it's true. The truth about it is it's easy to hate this stuff from a distance. And I am the first one who doesn't want to see CM Punk fight in the UFC, although I think it's a completely different debate. I didn't pay attention to Ryzen at all. If you follow me on Twitter, I barely even acknowledged it. And really, what is the value in watching the main and co-main event? Very little, right? If you really like hardcore MMA. Um... But there's an audience out there that, <laughs> whether we like it or not, they love it, and they're sizable in number. They're bigger than us, you know. And it's weird to see an MMA promoter who we think represents our interests cater to their interests, but that's what's happening. And the truth is, your interests in MMA are so strong that that promoter, even though he's valuing their interests over our interests is betting eventually you'll come along in a way that's not really hurting. Are you surprised at how Ronda's comments were received by hardcore fans? Is she the most hated in the sport? Um, she the most hated. She's the most controversial in a way. She just, again, you know talking about Scott Coker appealing to an audience that isn't us. Ronda Rousey is hardly ours anymore either. You know, she doesn't talk to MMA media. She goes on Ellen. You know, she doesn't talk to us or Junkie or anyone. 
she talks to you know sports center so she's barely ours to begin with um i just want to say something too about this i think it's a crime a crime a crime that espn is getting ramona shelburne to talk about and cover rousey rather than getting brett akamoto to do that work um it is amazing to me that these media institutions keep repeating the same mistakes of 2006 and 2007. I just want to mention this real quickly because Brett Akimoto is one of the best reporters in the sport. He is a consummate professional. He knows how to talk on camera. He has great sources within the industry. Um, and it is, to me, comical that they've got Ramona Shelburne on SportsCenter talking about Ronda Rousey. What a complete joke. Ramona Shelburne is an excellent reporter, and she did fantastic work as it relates to the Do Donald Sterling uh, you know, news. She has no business talking about Ronda Rousey on TV. It was amazing to me that in 2006 and 2007, when MMA was kind of getting really hot post-Ultimate Fighter and media organizations were beginning to add more and more people to their roster to talk about the sport, they didn't know who to, they didn't they didn't know any MMA reporters. I mean, there were some out there, but they didn't know them. So they just got guys in-house who talked about boxing to do it. Or, you know, some other credentialed reporter who'd been in the game for a long time to come over and do it. And they would fumble it every single time. And eventually, the MMA eventually these news organizations either stopped covering MMA or wised up and got the right guys to do it. And here we are again in 2016 and Ramona Shelburne is doing nothing of interest or importance or relevancy related to Ronda Rousey while Brett Okamoto is sitting on the sidelines what a joke what a joke whoever at ESPN made that decision simply does not understand fight culture fight news fight journalism and why there's a big difference between that and sports journalism generally it's a crime Brett Nakamoto got, got ignored there. Just want to make that known. Luke, assuming Cerrone wins this weekend, do you think he'll stay at welterweight or does he drop back down to lightweight? I think he'll take another fight at welterweight or the most interesting fight of those two he can. Like if he gets a so-so matchup at lightweight but a really cool matchup at welterweight, he'll probably just pick that way. Um... Thoughts on Bellator versus UFC gloves? I have not handled either of them in any kind of recent way, so I can't make any kind of informed comment about them. Do you think it would be fair to score the first round of Berkman and Nunes at 10-8, considering KJ landed, I believe, zero strikes? That's tough. Uh, probably not. True or false? Does CM Punk fight at two of UFC 200? False. When fighters are accused like Penn, does the media ever avoid topics so as not to harm the relationship with said star? Not that I've ever seen, but I can't say it doesn't happen. Juan fights Rampage this year. Well, guess not that. That won't be true. Any indications of what fights may appear in UFC 200? I know as much as you guys do on that level. I'm sorry. Um, do fighters receive Monster Energy drink money? The ones who are directly sponsored by them do. Other ones don't. And I'll do one more here. Who is the better wrestler, Chad Mendez or RDA with regard to finding Conor McGregor? Will RDA find it harder or easier to take Conor down than Mendez did? Is RDA more dangerous than Mendez if he gets Conor to the ground? RDA is more dangerous than Mendez if he gets to the ground. Mendez couldn't even pass guard either because he didn't have energy or it's just not the way he competes. RDA has a lot more options once he gets down there. He's got all kinds of rides and he can let you move in certain ways. 
guys don't understand. If you have really good jiu-jitsu, you can put pressure on a guy to make him roll one way, and when they do, you launch your attacks. Guys who are really good at jiu-jitsu know, if you go this way, I do this attack. If you go that way, I do this attack. So he knows all these different control positions and transitions in a way that Mendez probably doesn't. Um, you know, and because of the fluency of his striking, he can get he can get to the takedown earlier. Look, Mendez is going to be better at the finishes. He's going to have cleaner, more powerful takedowns generally. But between the setups that are a function of the striking, that's going to favor RDA. Once you get down there, it's going to favor RDA. In other words, Mendez is the better wrestler, but he doesn't. RDA doesn't need to have exactly the same kind of technique or um, the same level of polish to be even more effective, A, in getting more takedowns, and B, keeping him down there uh, uh, once he gets him there. All right, do me a favor. Follow me on Snapchat. Um, the Luke Thomas 79 I'll have tons of coverage today. Uh, there should be some one-on-ones today, so that should be fun. And, uh, yeah, um, email me, luke.thomas at espionation.com. Follow, uh, follow me on Twitter at SBNLukeThomas, and I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash Sports. So thank you so much for watching. I'm sorry if there's been all kinds of uh, technical disturbances. I appreciate everyone watching me while I'm on the road. I have to go, and until next time, stay frosty.